Let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Last couple of days we've had rain, and up in the mountains where I now live, we've had about 12 to 18 inches of snow. Coming down the hill yesterday was ice and snow, and this is sort of an an interesting first step at um, coming into town yesterday morning. As I'm coming down this street, there's a few cars behind me and there's one truck in front of me. And the guy in front of me is obviously is this local mountain guy. You can tell by the rusted truck and just the look. And so I thought, this guy knows what he's doing. Well, uh, he put on his brakes, and it gave way because there's ice under the snow, and his car starts spinning, 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 until he's facing entirely backwards on the side of the road, down in a rut off the shoulder. That was my first experience in mountain snow driving, here at least. I won't go into a tirade on driving tonight, don't worry. But he was in a rut. He was facing backwards, he couldn't go forward, he couldn't get out till the snow cleared or he got somebody to tow him out. And that's precisely in a spiritual sense where the Galatian church is at. They're not moving forward in Christ. In fact, they're sliding backwards. They're going backwards. They're caught in this rut of legalism. And this is what I mean. Paul points back to a time when they had a relationship that was full of freedom, full of joy. They loved him. They trusted him. And they loved God as a children would love his father. It was intimate. It was warm. But for some reason, we've discussed the reason, a group of people came in convincing this young church to keep the law. So they're going back to pre Christian observances, Jewish holidays, Jewish rituals, doing all the things Paul himself grew up doing, going back, not forward, not advancing in the Lord, but actually going backwards. Sometimes Christians can get stuck. I see people from time to time who are believers, and it just seems like they've stagnated. They're not really growing. They could take this test that was given at the beginning and they'd have some pretty surprising answers on it. And even Christians can sometimes get in a rut. I see it all the time. Where there is excitement at first, a little bit of growth, then they plateau or they read some new book, hear some new teacher that challenges everything they grew up in foundations, the foundations of the faith learning, And they just lose it. They just get off track. They stagnate. But there are others I see, and this is really what makes ministry all worth it. You give them a little bit of truth, and they grab a hold of it, and they grow. They don't care what other people think about them. In fact, it's like they sprout wings, and they just take off. And you look at people so young in the Lord, they seem so mature, and yet there are others who have been in the Lord for a long professional time, and they are flatliners spiritually. There's a great story about Dwight L. Moody. Now, D.L. Moody founded the Moody Bible Church in Chicago, was a great evangelist in our country, especially back in the eastern, midwestern section of the country, Oh, a hundred years ago and back. 
When he was first converted, he had an appetite for the Bible nobody could quench. In fact, his love for the Bible was such that he would read it and he would immediately obey it and put it into practice. Well, with his newfound hunger and thirst for God, he became a menace to other believers in his church. That's right. He was around older Christians who felt intimidated by this young whippersnapper loving God so intensely. They didn't want him around because every time he'd come to church, he'd have some exciting new thing that God had done in his life and he wanted to share it with people. And a lot of the people he shared it with, they hadn't had an experience with God for 130 years. In fact, they finally went to Dwight L. Moody's uncle asking him to get rid of the boy or put a muzzle on him, just sort of quiet him down a little bit. One gal who wrote a book about this, Ethel Barrett, writes, His robust spiritual health and bounding energy disturbed their napping. He was just too much. So while they were sucking their thumbs... He was growing until he left them far behind. He grew more in a few years than they did in 30. I'll tell you what. Paul would have loved to have seen the Galatian church like Moody. And, and at first they were. You, you were going so well, Paul said. Who hindered you? Why is it that you just sort of staled out? You just stopped growing? For two chapters, Paul is very personal. For the next two chapters, in chapter 4, we're in the midst of it, is very doctrinal. And the last two chapters are very practical. A lot of people don't like doctrine. And if you don't like doctrine, you may be one to leave early tonight because you're going to read a lot of it tonight in these passages. In fact, Paul, the, the apostle, predicted there's a time coming when men will not endure sound doctrine. Have you ever heard that before? I don't care about doctrine. Doctrine isn't important. I just want to love Jesus. Well, what do you think doctrine's all about? Doctrine means healthy teaching that is meant to lead you to Jesus. But we have this erroneous idea that doctrine is a dirty word. It's too technical. It really doesn't mean what, what we really should all be about, and that's nonsense. Until I come, Paul said, give attention to doctrine. Acts 2, they gave themselves steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine. It was the prophet Hosea that predicted that there was a famine. In fact, he said it was a famine for God's word. And Hosea said, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. You know what it is when you get a gadget and the gadget comes with a manual and you don't want to read the manual because the manual is that thick and the gadget's only that big. And you think, I can figure this out. You plug it in, push a few buttons, and it'll work. And then it doesn't work or you break it or it stops or lights blink on it. And so you go, man, what does that mean? I better go get that book, that manual. One of my concerns is that we have sort of lost our appetite for the manual the manual of our lives, the manual of truth. We really don't want to know what the full counsel of God is. That is, we're long on enthusiasm, but we're short on facts. 
The Galatians were growing, making progress, learning the foundational truths of the gospel, coming into a gracious relationship with God through Christ, until these nitwits came in, the Judaizers who convinced them, well, Paul is wrong. What you really need is this system. And instead of staying with Paul and and, and plumbing the depths of Christ alone, they went off and had their little heyday into legalism. It was um, James Montgomery Boyce, who's now in heaven, but he wrote something really great. He said, quote, We do not have a strong church today, nor do we have many strong Christians. We can trace the cause to an acute lack of sound spiritual knowledge. Ask the average Christian to talk about God, and after getting past the expected answers, you will find that his God is a little God of vacillating sentiments. That was Paul's concern. They were vacillating up and down in sentimentality and legalism, and he wanted them stable. He's telling them about being adopted as sons and daughters of God. You guys have a real relationship with God. Why would you trade that in for the slavery of rules and regulations? Let's pick it up in verse 8. We're going to read um, a few chunks of it tonight. And uh, you saw on the the, uh, video that our title is called Stuck in a Rut Going Backward. And as we go through this tonight, using that theme, I want to tell you a few things about ruts. Number one, everyone has one. Everybody has a rut of some kind. I'll explain. And because everybody has a rut, make sure you choose yours carefully. Choose the best rut you can get into. Now follow me here. Verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those, or were slaves to those, which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather, are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Yesterday, when that truck spun out in front of me going down that icy, snowy hill, I noticed something about him. He was not in the right lane. He was in the left lane, going the opposite, going down, going where you should be going right. He was going in the left lane. And I was thinking, now, why is he doing that? He's in the wrong lane. And I discovered that he was doing it because the snow was fresh, and he thought, I'll get more traction in the snow than over here on the ice. Now, he was on that side. I was on this side. And I was in the well-worn ruts of the cars who were in front of me. He thought, oh, I'm not going to do that because there's ice in those ruts. I'm going to get on the fresh snow, not knowing that just under that much snow was sheer ice. And he put on the brake and he spun out. We all have ruts. We're we're traveling in some well-worn area, some pathway. We serve someone. We worship something. It's a fact of human nature that God programmed us to worship, to serve. We question, is there somebody, something out there? And mankind is driven to worship. 
someone, something. In fact, Bob Dylan, a few years ago, wrote a song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Anybody remember that song? It was a great song. It may be the devil. or it, Well, we have a little clip. Play that clip. Okay, well, maybe we're not going to have a clip. Oh, there it is. You may be an ambassador to England or France. Crank it a little bit. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion. The world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Now listen carefully. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Okay, well, he's not known for like the prettiest voice in the world, but. The thrust of the song is no matter what background you have, no matter what you're into, you're someone's slave. You serve somebody. <laughs> As Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans 6, don't you realize whatever you choose to obey becomes your master. So whatever we worship, we eventually obey. Whatever we obey, we are the slaves to that, if we're truly worshiping. The Galatians once were servants to pagan gods. The Greco-Roman pantheon, they worshiped and served these gods, which really were not gods at all, Paul says. But that was your old rut. That was the old path you were going into. You gave your life to Christ, Galatians. You're on a new set of tracks, a new groove. You're serving a new God. Don't go back to the path that made your, your, your life spin out and wreck. D don't get into the old rut of bondage, which was legalism coming into the church. You observe, he says, verse 10, days and months and seasons and years. He knew that they would... They would get on this path of legalism, and pretty soon it would be hard to stop. They were going back to uh, practicing the Passover, Rosh Hashanah, the Jubilee year, uh, the Sabbath on a weekly basis. Now, if you're into uh, Jewish observances and you want to learn more about your roots in the Bible, nothing wrong with that as long as it's something you choose to do. But once it becomes something you have to do in order to be holy or righteous, that's the problem. That's the problem of legalism. We all have a rut. Choose yours carefully. In fact, scientists who study this, study the brain, say that there are neural pathways that develop, like little grooves on a record. You get used to thinking a certain way and then acting a certain way, and then you develop a habit and pretty soon a lifestyle. Like the old saying goes, if you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an action, you will reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you'll reap a lifestyle. And if you sow a lifestyle, you eventually reap a destiny. So all of us have patterns of behavior that we're used to following. Choose yours carefully. Paul said, that was your old rut. Get into the new one. Now, I will freely admit to you, I'm in a rut. You see, I get up every morning and I practice my rut. I grab my Bible, cup of espresso, 
find a nice spot by a window. It's quiet. I open it up. I read through the Bible. I pray about what I've read. If God speaks to me about something in particular, I write it down to keep it. It's been a habit of my life since 1973. I'm in a rut, and I freely admit it. I've chosen that rut. People have said, Skip, you're so narrow-minded. And I usually say, thank you. I'm glad you noticed. In fact, I would hope that you would notice something even more. I'm not narrow-minded. I'm absolutely close-minded. Oh, you are? Yeah. Jesus closed my mind. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You mean you're not open to No, I'm not open to anything. Anyone. Once you know the truth and you're set free, why go back to bondage? Well, aren't you searching? Uh-uh. I've been found. Jesus closed my mind. Well, you're brainwashed. Yes, Jesus washed my brain <laughs> and closed my mind. And I'm in a rut and I'm narrow-minded. Praise God. We all have ruts. Choose yours carefully. The Galatians weren't. They were vacillating back and forth. Grace and then law. And Paul's trying to convince them to stay where God has called them. Now I want you to know that Paul makes an interesting point here before we quickly move on. Notice that he says that you did not know God, but you served those which by nature are not God's. He points out that there may be many belief systems, but the gods of these systems really don't exist. You may have had a sincere worshiper of Zeus or a sincere worshiper of Paneus or a sincere worship of any of the Greco-Roman gods, but they never really existed. They weren't real. There's only one true God. There aren't many gods. There's one God. All the other gods and goddesses that have been worshipped through history have been assigned deity made up in people's minds, not revealed from heaven, made up and assigned attributes and deity too. And that's pretty easy to demonstrate, by the way. That's not just a conjecture that is arguable for a very long period of time. And Paul knew he was standing on solid ground. Now look at verse 12. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, they being Judaizers, legalists who came into the church, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. Brings up my second point about ruts. Ruts will determine your relationships. The rut that you choose will determine your relationship. 
Yesterday, I'm going down the hill. Guy spins out in front of me. His car's facing backwards. He gets out of his car. I slowly stop. He looks very disgusted. There's a whole line of cars behind me. He gets out and looks at us. Now, he was the leader. We're all following him. But now the relationship has changed. He's going to be the last one down the hill. In fact, he has to put chains on to get down the hill. So the relationship that we had has changed because of what happened to him in his rut. Um, The Galatians at one time had a vibrant, wonderful relationship with Paul. They loved him. They trusted him. In fact, what Paul does here is bring out an incident that happened in his life with them that demonstrated just what kind of relationship they had. But because of the rut that they have chosen, the rut of legalism rather than freedom in Christ, keeping a law rather than living by a promise, because of that, the relationship between the Galatians and Paul has changed dramatically. And there, in the rut, putting the chains on that will keep them in bondage rather than having the freedom to move on. They once had a simple faith. Now, notice what Paul said. I have to find it first. He said, brethren, here it is, verse 12. I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. What does that mean? It means that when Paul was in Galatia, he didn't put on any airs like, well, you know, I'm a Jewish rabbi and you're not. I'm spiritually superior as a teacher. And of course, you're just a bunch of garden variety pagans. He never stood aloof. His approach to the Galatians was to rub elbows with them, to chew the fat with them, so to speak, to get on their level, to have intimate fellowship with them, to allow them to take care of him. He never maintained a superiority or maintained spiritual dignity. That was Peter's temptation. Now, I mentioned Paul. Peter, you remember, when he goes to Cornelius' house, remember that back in Acts, when God says, follow these guys and go to the house of Cornelius. He's fearing God. He wants to hear a message from you, Peter. Peter comes to the house of Cornelius. He goes, now you guys know that it's not lawful for me, a Jew, to even hang out with you Gentiles. But God told me I have to come. So what do you got to say? When Paul approached the Galatians, there was no air of superiority, no reluctance. I became like you, which, by the way, was one of his principles, wasn't it? His principle stated in 2 Corinthians 9, to the Jews I became a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are of the law, I became as having the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those without the law, I became like those without the law, though not without the law toward Christ. To the slave, I became as a slave, that I might win some. By all means, win some to Christ. He said, I did this for the sake of the gospel. So that was Paul's M.O., to become like the people he was around, to get to their level. And so Paul says, I've become like you. I've become like a Gentile. I'm a Jewish rabbi. But I've been in your presence. I didn't keep kosher dishes. I didn't separate myself from you. So you become like me now. You're going back into the Jewish legalism I left. You become like me. 
There's a principle there for missionaries. Sometimes missionaries, unlike Paul, will come into a culture with a feeling of, I'm superior. I'm the great white missionary. My culture has changed for the last couple hundred years because, well, we're obeying God and you're not. And I'm superior, and so they live apart from the people rather than with the people. They won't eat the food of the people because, after all, it's not McDonald's. I remember when I was in China one time, and they were feeding us all sorts of strange food, and I'd always ask the question, well, what is it? And they'd tell me, and it made it worse. i go, oh, really? You eat that? Okay, great. And so I started eating, and I'd get served another dish. What is it? Finally, Chuck Smith, who was with me, because he didn't want to know what it was, it was making him sick as I'm asking the question, and they're telling him. He turns to me finally and goes, don't ask. Just eat it. Before you can say, become like me, you have to say, I've become like you. Here I am. I've come into your territory on your level. I've become like you Galatians. Now I'm asking you, in the name of Christ, as Paul the Apostle, you also become like me. Paul paints a picture of his visit to Galatia and the relationship that they once had. Notice, he says in verse 14, My trial which was in my flesh you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as of Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? It seems that Paul, when he went to Galatia, had some kind of a disease he was fighting. Some have conjectured it was malaria. The lowlands of Pamphylia are mosquito-infested areas, or at least were at one time. And malaria was easy to contract in those areas at that time. And it could be that Paul got about with malaria. Some say he got an infection. And he was driven to the highlands of Galatia to recover. It seemed like he never intended to preach the gospel in Galatia. He would have bypassed it. But the Lord, he is saying, used the disease in his flesh to keep him bedridden so that the Galatians would care for him, so that in that state, in that context, he would share the message of salvation with them. I find that very interesting, because a, a lot of people will say, God never wants you to be sick. It's never God's will that you be sick. If you're sick, you're living a Satan-defeated life. And I don't know why they all have accents that say that, but it seems a lot of them do. Walk in faith, have perfect health. According to Paul the Apostle, God can use disease as a tool for his glory. This could have even been Paul's thorn in the flesh that he mentioned in 2 Corinthians 12. A messenger of Satan to buffet him from which he prayed three times for the Lord to deliver him. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now, whenever you're afflicted, whenever I'm afflicted, like Paul, we ask God to deliver us, don't we usually? Lord, heal me. Get rid of this thing. As if to say, Lord, I could serve you more diligently, more completely, if this 
irritant was out of my life. If only I had a healthier body, then I could serve you. If only my husband would be devoted to you, then I could serve you fully. If only my wife was more devoted to you, then I could, Lord. If I didn't have this crummy job where these unbelievers are always ditching your name all day long, then I'd be free to really share. As if to say, in our worst state, in our afflicted state, we're unusable. A man called me some time back from Washington, D.C. area. I think it was a radio talk show, live talk show of some kind. He hears the program back in the Washington area. And he told me about his disease, this debilitating disease that is slow in progress, but it's starting to catch up with him. And he goes, Skip, I can't understand it because I believe God has given me a gift and a calling and a desire and the wherewithal to go overseas and be a missionary. But how can I in this condition? And I said, well, why can't you? He goes, well, uh, I've got a disease that's going to take my life eventually. Well, look at Paul. He had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. In fact, it included an eye disease of some kind because he said, if it, if, if it were possible, you would have plucked your own eyes out and given them to me. At the end of the letter of the Galatians, he says, see what large letters I have written to you. So we know that Paul had some kind of an eye problem. He couldn't see, and it even disfigured, they think, his face so that he looked gnarly. He couldn't see very well. His eyes, they say, were pussy and running, some of the historians write. And yet, look how mightily God used him. And the Galatians at first received him as an angel. So why can't God use you with all of the disabilities, all of the problems, all of the issues? You know, we're so busy telling God what he can't do, what he should do, instead of just sitting there listening for him to tell us what he wants us to do. Lord, I can't do this and I can't do that. Why don't you just allow God to use you the way you are and hear what God is saying? Well, here's the problem. The Galatians now do an about face. They once received him as an angel. Paul says, now you treat me as an enemy. Why? Simply because Paul told them the truth about the grace of the gospel. They've been listening to false teachers, the Judaizers, telling them about keeping the law, being circumcised, going through the rituals, keeping the feasts, the festivals, the holy days. And Paul comes in out of love and says, that's bogus. That's wrong. They're false. Don't let them in. Don't entertain them. And because of his boldness in love to tell them the truth, Paul had become their enemy. Now, one of the most loving things you can do is to tell people the truth. And sometimes it's not easy, and don't always expect to garner friends with that. Jesus said to the spiritual leaders of his day, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from, excuse me, from God. Jesus told them the truth. They sought to kill him, to crucify him. Paul had become their enemy because he shared the truth. And yet, did you notice verse 19? My little children, isn't that tender? 
for whom I labor in birth until Christ is formed in you. Isn't that beautiful? Paul says, you treat me like an enemy, but I want you to know I still see you as my little children. In fact, I was the one who gave you spiritual birth, if you recall. It was under my ministry that you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ while I was there in Galatia and suffering that sickness. And as your spiritual progenitor, your spiritual mother, so to speak, I'm going through labor pains right now because I want to see Christ formed in you. Here, I gave you birth spiritually, but I don't see a family resemblance in you Galatians. You don't look like your father in heaven. You resemble more of Moses or really those legalists who are coming in. My desire is to see the Lord Jesus Christ formed in you. Now look at verse 21, and we'll go down to the end of the chapter, and we'll quit here. It gives us the third truth about ruts. Remember, the first one is choose what rut you're going to get into because everyone has one. Number two, ruts will change your relationships or determine what they are. And three, ruts can blind us from the big picture. Whatever rut you choose, or in this case, fall into, can blind you from the big spiritual picture. Notice verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Or don't you know what the Bible says? The law says that you say you affirm. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now don't lose me on this one because this is a tough paragraph. Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who did not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Back to my icy escapade yesterday, going down the hill. I come to a stop. The driver in front of me is completely turned around, as I mentioned, in a rut off the road. He's putting on his chains. A man is walking up the road, his car stalled. And he tells me, I don't know if you should go any further, son. The only people who have made it through are the people that have chains on their cars. He says, even four-wheel drives like yours are off in the ditch. There's five cars more in the ditch, he said. So you need chains. So... I, you know, I'm, I'm facing down the hill. It's not like I can turn around in these conditions. So I call my neighbor, Bob Church. 
lives right down the street. And I said, Bob, the guy tells me I need to get chains. Of course, I can't now. I'm stuck on this road going downhill. He says, I've lived up here for nine years, and never once have I needed chains. I said, well, okay, dude. He says, just go very slow and cautiously, and you'll make it fine. Because he had been up and down that road so many times, he could see the big picture. Just go slow. I know where the curve is. I know right where you're at. Just proceed cautiously. The driver who was stuck, both of them, couldn't see what was up ahead because they were, they were stuck. They had gone no further than where they had been rutted, turned around, ditched. They couldn't see the big picture. The same with the Galatians. Here they are. They want to live under the law. They're speaking to a rabbi here. Paul, the apostle, forgot more of the law than they'll ever remember. Paul knew the big picture. Paul saw the end of the road. Paul had been down that rut, that road, so many times and could see the big picture of what they were getting into. Oh, we want to live under the law. Oh, do you really? Well, let me tell you a few things about it. I can give you the big picture, and that's why he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, verse 21, don't you hear the law? Don't you know what it says? And Paul's point is, Galatians, if you would have proceeded slowly and cautiously and definitely with this message of the gospel of God's grace, you'd be fine. You see, the Judaizers were saying, this message that Paul preaches, this grace in salvation can get you into trouble. If you live freely by grace and don't keep the law, you might do a lot of things in the name of Jesus Christ that are against his will. So you need the law to stay straight, to stay right. Paul said, no, you don't. You just proceed cautiously with the gospel of freedom, and you'll be just fine. Now, the paragraph that we just read. Most scholars consider this to be the most difficult paragraph in the entire book, if not in all of Paul's writings. I have read this through and read this through, and a lot of times I walk away going, Paul, what were you thinking? And then I read what Peter says about Paul, and I go, uh-huh. You see, Peter said, our brother Paul wrote many things that are hard to understand. <laughs> I think Peter was going through his letters going, goodness. And I'll tell you why it's difficult. It's difficult, number one, because it presupposes that the reader has a broad and comprehensive view of the Old Testament, which most Christians today do not, by the way. There is a biblical illiteracy in most Christian churches. The average Christian doesn't know his or her Old Testament very well. There's names like Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael and Mount Sinai and Jerusalem. You have to have a view of that in an Old Testament sense. Number two, it's hard because Paul is speaking very technically here. Very, very technically. And if you were a rabbi... Not a problem. This is the kind of stuff, this argument of, of technicality was familiar in rabbinical schools. They loved the historical allegory. And that's what we have here. Let me explain it quickly and briefly. There's three parts to Paul's argument. Historical, allegorical, personal. Historical. There's two sons, two moms. The two sons were sons of Abraham. There was Ishmael. There was Isaac. 
Ishmael was born from Hagar, a slave woman from Egypt. Isaac was born from a free woman from Sarah. The allegorical is that these two boys and their moms represent two covenants, the old covenant, the new covenant, the law and grace. And just as Ishmael was born from the Egyptian, it was that he was born because Abraham and Sarah did not believe God. They didn't have faith in the promise of God, did they? After all, God said, Abraham, Sarah, I know you guys are old coots, 100 years old, but you're going to have a baby next year. And Sarah thought, oh, come on, impossible. Never happened before, and she laughed. They doubted the promise of God, and finally Abraham said, you know, just take, you know, or, or Sarah said, honey, just take my handmaiden. You know, she's young, and there's no way I'm going to have a kid. I think God, what, what he really meant is that you're going to have a son, and I'm going to have a son, but you're going to use my handmaid. So just go ahead and get her pregnant, and we'll call that God's promise, shall we? They couldn't live by faith in the promise, so they did something in the energy of the flesh. That's his analogy. Isaac was born as a result of the promise, and it was miraculous. Even as the new birth is miraculous, God changes the life from the inside out, not the outside in. Not legalistically, but by faith. So, historical, allegorical, the third is practical. So Paul is saying, okay, Galatians, you ought to take after Isaac, not Ishmael. Live by the promise, not by trying to help God out, not trying to earn anything like Ishmael. Take out after Isaac. Now he talks about two Jerusalems. Let me just quickly sum that up and we'll close. Two Jerusalems, earthly Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem is symbolic of the Jews. It's a fitting capital city that speaks of the Jewish nation. Just like if you talk about Moscow, you can use the term Moscow to uh, imply all of the Russian people. Or when people in the Middle East talk about Washington, D.C., they often imply the American people. The capital represents the people. Jerusalem represents the Jewish people. It represents the law, the culmination of the law, Jerusalem. Ah, but the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is the spiritual mother of all who believe we will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's contrasting simply the old covenant, the new covenant. One that is by works, one that is by grace. One you earn, one you receive and walk in faith. One you do something, one you receive as a promise. It's a contrast. Everybody gets in to a rut. Make sure you get into the right groove. And don't go backward, but go forward in grace, in freedom. Don't get stuck in legalism. If you do, I'll guarantee you something. I see it with every legalistic believer. I watch people start to grow and then get sidetracked. You'll lose your love for evangelism. And legalistic churches, you will notice, never grow. They die. They stagnate. Their motto is, we can't do that. And you can't do that either. Well, what about, no, you can't do that. Thou shalt not. I close with this. Live churches are constantly changing. Dead churches don't have to. 
Live churches have lots of noisy kids. Dead churches are fairly quiet. So if you want a quiet church. Live churches' expenses always exceed their income. Dead churches take in more than they ever dreamed of spending. Live churches are constantly improving for the future. Dead churches worship their past. Live churches move out in faith. Dead churches operate totally by human sight. Live churches focus on people. Dead churches focus on programs. Live churches are filled with tithers. Dead churches are filled with tippers. Live churches dream great dreams of God. Dead churches relive nightmares. Live churches don't have can't in their dictionary. Dead churches have nothing but. Live churches evangelize. Dead churches fossilize. Are you a fossil? Are you personally fossilizing? Have you reached sort of a plateau where you're not taking the word of God, the promises of God, seriously enough to apply? Or do you open the Bible or listen to a sermon, hear a radio broadcast and go, I've heard that before. I already know that. I, I actually heard of a pastor who preached a sermon one week, went back to his church and preached the same sermon the second week word for word. Made a few people quite angry. They went up to him afterwards. A couple on the elder board said, Pastor, I don't know if you know this or not, but you preached the same sermon last week that you did this week. I know that, he said. Why'd you do it? He said, I won't preach a new sermon until you live that sermon. They got his point. It was all about give me something new, something I haven't heard, tickle my ears, entertain me, better make it good. You got 30 minutes to make it good. Instead, I have 30 minutes to listen and be godly and respond. We're a country blessed, are we not, more than any other country in the world? We have Christian bookstores, and we have Christian television, we have Christian radio, and we have Bible teaching churches. But are we growing? Are we feasting, feeding on the word, obeying it? Are we going backwards? Backwards. 